And now, friends, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. We're going to read verses 1 through 27. That's on page 745 of your pew Bible. you to stand out of respect for God's word as we continue our series in the book of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at um, the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For twenty-three hundred evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near to where I stood, and when when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. 
His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you speak to us in your word. You give us even visions and dreams and prophecies. And these things we know are not ultimately for our confusion, but their end is really for our comfort. So help us to find comfort in this vision. And what is cloudy, what is unclear, help us to to wade through. And Lord, what, what remains unclear until the time of your coming, help us to embrace as mystery and to love you for it. But Lord, help us to have ears to hear what you have designed for us to hear in this prophecy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I wonder if we have any history buffs in the room today. Is there anyone who just loves history, maybe from a particular period? Um, Anyone who just loved history as their favorite class in school? That was not me. I remember... um, I. I struggled with history in high school, middle school and high school. I found it kind of boring. And then there came a time in which I knew I wanted to be a pastor. And when I was offered those special history classes, like, you know, they called them AP classes, advanced classes in history. I I turned them down in high school because I said, I want to be a pastor. And what does history really have to do with, with teaching the word of God? Boy, was I wrong. You come to a passage like Daniel chapter 8. And you realize that history has everything to do with um, understanding the depths of scripture in all of its richness. And as I started to wrestle with passages like this and read the Bible more, I realized if I was to be a good pastor, if I was to be a faithful pastor in college, I needed to take many more history classes so that I could catch up. It's simple. Why does history matter? Why is it important to know about history? It's because God controls history. It's because God saves his people in history, right? God doesn't just give his word in this void. He he gives it in a particular context and to his people at a a particular time. And then he sends Jesus Christ to save us at a specific time in history. If we want to really hear all that God has to say about us, we have to wade into history. And so we're going to do that today. And I hope you see history is not quite as boring as some teachers can make it. Um, In fact, I've had some teachers that um, in college that can make history come to life. I hope you see that that's the kind of teacher that God is. He brings history to life. He shows you why history matters. He shows you. That his, his history is all about your salvation. 
And so I want us to see that this passage, which at surface level can be quite confusing uh, when we first read it, um, it makes sense and it has a lesson for our souls. And we're going to see this unpacked, first of all, that in seeing that this is a vision ahead of its time. And then second, it's a vision for our time. And I've done something a little unusual. In, um, on the back of your bulletin, there's a sermon outline. I've actually included that outline because I know I'm going to be talking about a lot of history. And I'm, I want to make this, uh, this clear for you all. And then at the very bottom, I've included the names of three rulers that are going to feature prominently in this. Because if you're going to understand what this vision is all about, you need to know their names. It's very useful to know their names. And so there it is for you. So first, this is a vision ahead of its time. And, and the vision is rather simple, isn't it? At least in terms of its, its, uh, its picture. It, the picture is of a ram, a goat, and a little horn. And Daniel sees all of this while he is standing by the Ulai Canal um, in, the, in the capital of Babylon. This is uh, really in the early days of Daniel's ministry in Babylon while he's serving. And he's there. Um, under King Belshazzar, and what is happening? He's suddenly transported to the capital city, to the Ulai Canal, where he sees this ram. It kind of reminds me of when I was hiking uh, with Natalie uh, in Glacier National Park, and we were hiking up this mountain trail, and we look, and there's a ram right next to us. It's like, is this real life? It was weird. And there it is with its curved horns, majestic creature just standing there by a river. Daniel sees a ram, and then he sees that ram become great until a goat challenges the ram, charges at it, overpowers it, and takes uh, takes its place as the greatest. And then he zooms in on this little horn that is doing terrifying and great things on the top of that goat's head. What is this all about? Well, Daniel actually really helps us here because he includes the interpretation. And he starts, to, he starts to show us what this means. And we, we actually get more specifics than we have any, uh, at any point in the book of Daniel so far. The ram is who? Who does the ram symbolize? The great empire of Media Persia. The ram has two horns. And it says one horn is bigger than the other. Just kind of like remember last week we saw... Um, Oh boy, it was, a, it was a bear. And the bear was kind of hunched over with one side was, was above the other. It's the same idea. It's speaking, it's representing the same empire. And what, what it is, is that Media was a nation uh, that was aligned with Persia, but Persia was the greater expression of that kingdom. It had more power. There was an imbalance of power, imbalance of glory. And what does this ram do? It charges westward, northward, southward. In other words, it comes from the east and it just takes over everything else. That's exactly what Cyrus, the king of Persia, did. He led his his forces and they come from the east and they take over Babylon and all of the known world. And it was at that point that Cyrus defeated Babylon. He called himself king of the world. 550 B.C. King Cyrus makes that great announcement. And so it would be that he was king of the world until a few hundred years later, when his mighty nation, his great empire fell to another. And who was it? It was the empire represented in that goat. What does the goat 
Daniel tells us in the interpretation. The goat is Greece. And basic, you know, history 101. This is what I really needed to know in high school that I punted until college. Greece comes along and supplants Media Persia as the greatest of the world. Um, Here comes Alexander the Great. You could say he's the original goat, the original greatest of all time, right? And here he comes with all his power. And in only three years, that young prince from Macedonia um, takes over Persia. Just in three years. That was, un- that was unthinkable. But he had a new approach to warfare that, that secured this victory. And it was at that time that Alexander the Great engages in this kind of cat and mouse game with the king of Persia at the time. His name is Darius III. And Darius III uh, thinks he still has some way to defeat Alexander. But there comes this disheartening letter where all of a sudden uh, Alexander writes to him and says, Let any further communication you wish to make with me be addressed to the king of all of Asia. See what Alexander is saying? He's saying, he's saying, I am the greatest now. Just like the goat, right? The goat of the vision becomes great so that the whole world trembles before it. So that the ram is is trampled beneath it. And so this is what's happening on the great scene of history. Media Persia comes to power over Babylon, but then Greece comes to power over Media Persia. And all of this, you need to understand, is really setting the stage for the little horn that comes out of the goat. So why is God telling me all this? What do I need to focus on? Well, the way the vision unfolds, he's, he's basically setting the scene of world history for you. Here's what's going to happen over the next 300 years. And 300 years from now, something's going to happen that you need to focus in on. Because what happens 300 years after all these upheavals? Well, the Greek Empire divides into four kingdoms, four generals. And we see that in the vision as well, right? There were four horns that come out after Alexander the Great. And who are they? They're the generals um, who follow Alexander. And these four generals become four kingdoms that divide up the Greek Empire. And it was out of one of those kingdoms that comes this little horn that gets so much attention in this vision. Who is he? He grows greater and and he's powerful. In verse 9, we see who he is. But we don't hear his name. You have to go to the history books to hear his name. Antiochus IV Epiphanes. You see his name there in your, your sermon outline? Antiochus Epiphanes. Who was he? He was a tyrant who came out of that Greek line, that Greek empire, the goat. And he came out of one of the kingdoms once Greece was divided. And it was the Seleucid kingdom. And out of that kingdom comes Antiochus IV Epiphanes. His name simply means this, God manifest. God manifest. You think that's a blasphemous name. Just wait until you hear what he does. He made it his unholy mission to force the Jewish people to conform to the ways of Greek Gentiles. I mean, who knows what? I I think you will see why, but it's just like, why did you choose to do this? He has so much to do with his power. And yet he focuses on Judea, this tiny little place in the world, where at this time, the Jewish people have finally, under the great decree of Persia, been granted to go back to their homeland. 
and rebuild the temple. And so here the Jews are. They finally rebuilt their temple only for Antiochus Epiphanes in 175 to take charge and to make it his mission to terrorize God's people. And that's what he does. We hear about his exploits, his horrible exploits in uh, the book of the Maccabees. It's a book. It's not part of scripture, but it's a book. Um, it's two books, in fact, that uh, were written during the time um, after God spoke to his people in the Old Testament and before he would start to speak again in the New Testament. And what do we hear about Antiochus Epiphanes? It's that he slaughtered those who continued to practice circumcision. I mean, ruthless. He killed people that continued this, this practice that distinguished the Jews from the rest of the world. He burned the scriptures. What do we hear in verse 12? That this little horn would cast down truth. And that's exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He took the scriptures, and whenever someone was found with the Torah, he would kill them, and he'd burn, he'd burn the Torah. It's not made up. It's, it's recorded in history. You say, why would he do that? He shut down the temple sacrifices. He, just, he brought them to a grinding halt. No more sacrifices. And then he did the worst, the most unthinkable thing to the Jews. He took a pig, an unclean animal in the Old Testament law, and he sacrificed that pig on the altar to the god Zeus. And the sight of all Israel saw this so that it became known that this thing that he did was an abomination of desolation. It's a horrible, horrible thing he did in the sight of God's temple. Now imagine you're a Jew hearing this in Daniel's day, 300 years before it happened. This vision is going to hit hard, isn't it? This vision is going to rock you to your core. In fact, I think that's why Daniel gets physically sick when he hears it. He says, dark days are ahead. God, you haven't even brought brought our people back to the temple. We're still in exile. And you're saying you're going to bring them back to the temple. And then at that time, Antiochus Epiphany, some, some crazy madman is going to then oppress God's people. And all this is going to happen because once again, we're going to rebel and and commit transgression and sin against God. This is horrible. But I want you to see as as, as soon as you're rocked by by that impression of how, how dark this vision is for the people of God, I want you to see the first truth to take away. The first thing that anchors God's people and shows them that this is a vision of comfort. First of all, note that God predicted this. It was a vision ahead of its time, truly. Don't miss that basic fact. 300 years before these things happened, God laid this stuff out in precise details. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that God showed that you know, media Persia was going to come after Babylon and have this imbalance of power? And then sure enough, here comes that male goat, Alexander the Great. And then... After him, the, the generals, and after them, this, this figure, Antiochus Epiphanes, and the specific things he would do, you say, God, that is amazing. Only God could do that. You know, it's, it's why I think there are um, some critics who come to the book of Daniel, and they want to push its date way further than uh, in, in time than in 
than it claims to be written. They want to say that there was some guy who showed up maybe right after Antiochus Epiphanes and pretended to be Daniel and wrote the book as if he was writing 300 years earlier. Why would they do that? Because they don't like the idea that God can speak 300 years before something happens and then they have to accept that, that this is a supernatural book, that it's true prophecy. But guys, do you see that this is actually the beauty of this prophecy? The first anchor that keeps you rooted? That God can do this. He sees the nations. He sees what they're going to do. He holds them in his hands. He is sovereign over everything that comes to pass. He declares the end from the beginning. And he rules over sheep and goats of history like a great shepherd that pulls them in and says this far, but no further. Only God can do that. And so as the Israelites would have heard this prophecy, as you hear this, you need to understand, friends, that this, this is a vision of dark days ahead, but it is a vision that comes to us from a sovereign God who knows the end from the beginning, who shepherds history, and who is not frightened of the ram, who's not frightened of the goat, who is not frightened of the little horn, who in fact is working all things to the good of those who love him. It is a vision ahead of its time, and that is a great comfort. But and you need to keep that in mind. Hold on to that as we talk about this second feature of this vision. And it's simply this, that this is also a vision for our time. It's a vision for our time, for today. You say, what? This vision about a ram and a goat and Antiochus Epiphanes and all this, this is for today? Yes, yes. Because what God is doing in this vision is he is serving up this this picture meal for his people and saying, here you go, saints. You need eyes to see what was going on then and what's going on now. And the first thing, the first way that this vision is for our time is simply this, that it calls us as a warning. It says, watch out, saints. The darkness still looms. The darkness still closes in. You know, Antiochus Epiphanes died. The little horn broke. So why is it that it seems like one after another, these evil tyrants and evil men and terrible movements of power seem to pop up in history like weeds, just one after another? And why is it that they seem to always have this common feature that they oppress God's people and they, and they turn against the church and they bring down wrath and judgment and, and terror upon the church? Why is that? Why is it that we hear in, in the New Testament that this kind of figure, Antiochus Epiphany style figures keep popping up like weeds? Listen to 1 John 2.18. John says this, Antichrist is coming. So now many antichrists have already come. And then you hear in 2 Thessalonians 2 of a man of lawlessness. And what what does this man of lawlessness do? Well, it starts to feel eerily like Antiochus Epiphanes, doesn't it? He he claims to be God manifest. He sits in the temple. He he does these things things that to oppress the people of God. You start to say... Why does this feel like deja vu? Why does it feel like the same guy keeps popping up again and again and again? 
It's not because Antiochus Epiphanes is reincarnated. It's because something, someone looms behind him and looms behind any antichrist figure that sets itself up against God and against God's people all the way to the final uh, ultimate antichrist figure, whoever he might be. Who is the puppet master behind Antiochus Epiphanes? Who is the puppet master behind every antichrist that, that sets himself up today? It's Satan. We do not fight against flesh and blood, but against every power in the heavenly places, the forces of darkness. That's what the scriptures tell us. Satan is behind um, Antiochus and he's behind the Antichrist. The same tactics he uses. What does he do today? What does Satan do? This is what you need to see. This is what God is showing you. Satan tries to deceive the church, and he does this through several clever tricks. First of all, he persecutes the temple of God. He persecutes God's people. Do you see that in the scriptures? Do you see that in, the, in, in life around you that Jesus really is correct when he says, you will be persecuted if you believe in me. I have a feeling that the youth this upcoming week are going to experience some persecution as they simply try to talk to people about good news. In a non-combative way, they're going to be gentle and full of respect, and yet they can still expect to be cursed at and spat on and you know, told, told off. And, uh, who knows? Satan persecutes the temple of God. He persecutes the church. What else does he do? He throws down truth. He did that with Antiochus, and he does it today. How does he do it? He attacks the scriptures. Isn't that what we see all around us, even within the church, this struggle to actually believe what the word of God says and that it is the word of God? We talked in Sunday school today about this raging, difficult question that keeps getting put before us. How do you know that the Bible is really 66 books and and no other? And we have answers to that question, but this kind of thing that that Satan brings along with his deception, what what is it designed to do? It's caused to make us question the Bible. What else does Satan do? He stops temple sacrifices. Today, we don't have temple sacrifices because Christ is that ultimate sacrifice. But what does Satan do? He attacks the gospel. He attacks what temple sacrifices were always pointing towards. He makes people feel like there's no forgiveness for them. He takes the gospel and he dilutes it of its power. And so he he leaves people strapped with guilt and wondering, is there any way that this could be dealt with? That's what Satan does. And he, and he, he spends churches uh, to, to preach sermons on, um, on money and marriage and everything that you could think of except the heart of the gospel. We must be prepared to face these difficult attacks, these difficult days, but God doesn't give us any promise in this passage that there's going to be some rapture to remove us before these things come. He doesn't give us any promise that we are going to be spared from these difficult dark days. Do you see that? Do you see that he's showing us the cosmic battle behind Antiochus 
and the Antichrist. But even as you hear about Satan's ploys, I think you should be comforted by this fact that there's nothing new that Satan ever does. His tricks are terrifying, but they're typical. And so what God is basically doing is he is taking Satan's element of surprise and he's ripping it out of his hands. So that when we see this stuff happening, it's it's not like we're shocked or surprised. We say, hey, God said this was going to happen. God said this was going to happen. It's like... You, you ever played a trick on someone when, when you hide behind a door and you use the element of surprise to jump out and go, boom? What if you looked through a window and you saw that someone was crouching on the other side of, of the door and you knew they were going to jump out and scare you? They'd, they'd jump out and go, ah! And you would just maybe flinch just a little bit, right? That was it. I, I knew you were going to do that. I think that's kind of what God is preparing us to do. When Satan works his sinister powers against the church. But there's more comfort in this passage than this. There's more comfort than just the warning that God gives us and the element of surprise that he rips away from Satan. God also shows us in this prophecy that dawn follows the darkness, that there is hope for the saints and that we have to hold on to that hope. Verse 14, this beautiful Prophecy that at first we say, what does that mean? But I want you to see that it is actually one of the most beautiful elements of this vision. For 2,300 evenings and mornings, you'll experience this, this persecution. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. You know what I've found hard about enduring the difficulties of dark days, the difficulties of persecution? You know what I found hard, you know, when when Natalie and I were in the, in the NICU waiting for Lewis to be released. I didn't know when it would end. I didn't have a, a calendar, a date on the calendar, you know, circle, you know. On this day, we leave the hospital. On this day, persecution stops. On this day, people start, stop killing Christians. On this day, Jesus comes again. It's hard. Just morning after evening, morning after evening, morning after evening. Say, God, I trust you, but I'm waiting. When's this going to end? But God knows when it's going to end because he set a specific time. That's the beauty of that promise that for 2,300 evenings and mornings, persecution will rock God's people, but then it will stop. You read the commentators, they've got all sorts of ideas about what these 2,300 mornings and evenings are all about. You know, is it, is it about Antiochus and from the time he, he comes against the Jews to his downfall? Maybe. I mean, I think there are some pretty good guesses out there, but really I think when all is said and done, the best way to understand this number is to simply see it is going to be a long time that you're going to have dark days But there is a limit set to it. It will stop. And God has, on on the calendar of heaven, that date circled in red sharpie. This far, but no further. You see, Jesus has set a day when he will silence the storm of lawlessness. 
And just like God had that day when Antiochus Epiphanes would, would come to his dramatic end, not by human hands, the rumor goes that he was just struck by some sudden disease and, and died. In a very similar but even, even greater way, Jesus will show up when Antichrist is doing his worst. And what will he do? He will obliterate him. He will crush Satan, the puppet master, once and for all. And he'll come to his church, which has been rocked by a hurricane and it's in tatters, and, but it's holding on. And Jesus will restore it and beautify it so that we are everything that we were meant to be by him. He's going to bring us through that tribulation and he's going to beautify us. His cross is the perfect reminder that this is true because on the cross, Satan did his worst. He pulled out every trick in the book and it looked like all was lost. But God has set a limit to that darkness. On the third day, morning after evening, morning after evening, morning, and then Christ rose from the dead. Power over the grave, power over Satan, power over the puppet master. And now Satan's powers are severely limited so that he cannot stop the gospel from from going forth. He can scare us, but he can't stop us. Do you believe that? The 2300 evenings and mornings We're there to reassure God's people then, and they're there to reassure you now. Christ is coming. Be warned, stand firm, be ready. Let's pray.